welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police in Ireland. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience on Garda Síochána. So my name is Maho. I A lot of people say that I, I sound from Cork and I was like, I am from Cork. But I was uh, accidentally born in Paraguay and, you know, Cork people, we're born wherever we decide to be born. I always joke that um, if the dictator was alive when I was um, growing up, I would have probably ended up in a ditch, you know, um, because expressing my opinion and what I think is just and fair, you know, can just come out. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Maho Rivas, an activist who lives here in Cork, who's going to talk to us about her experiences, both of reporting hate crime, but also what it feels like to have the police involved in the immigration process. It was the day after the general election, so it was the day of the count, and we were outside Cork City Council, a bunch of amazing people, um, you know, and then myself, a, a pro-choice, because at that point, the eight hadn't been repealed, so it was about, we kind of would like to have autonomy. And next to us, there happened to be also another group. It was Anti-Deportation Ireland. So I was standing there, um, you know, as I said, I'm brown. And a couple of the people of Anti-Deportation Ireland were also people of colour. And as we were there, and I think we were just genuinely chatting, like we weren't chanting or anything at that moment. There was a man who came in and just started shouting to go back to where we came from. And then he went into the count centre. And I was just like, do you know what? No, this is not okay. And I'm always very aware that at that point, you know, I don't know about the immigration status of the other people next to me, but I'm like, I'm a spouse of an Irish national. I'm not undocumented. I'm okay with following up on this. I have a couple of law degrees on me. So it's just, you know, I I didn't come as like a summer child. You know, I've I've been working in different systems in Latin America in activism for women's rights and reproductive rights as as well. So, um, So I just went behind him. I followed him into the count centre. And it's a count centre, so there are guards around. So just to be like, no, this is not okay, and I'm going to report this. And by the time I was able to get the guy, and there was a guard there, he said that we were blocking the entrance. And the guards there was like, no, they weren't. We cleared the entrance. And I kept speaking at the guard, and I said, look, this man came in and started saying this. And at this point, the man is shouting at me in front of the guard. And he just kept shouting, but where are you from? But where are you from? Demanding to know where I was from. And I'm like, none of his business. And he just kept shouting at me. And the guard was there. We were all within the one meter. I just said to the guard, look, I would like to report this man. So I was just talking in a very civilized way and and just kind of ignoring this man. Um, I would like you, you know, to take the report. And he was like, look, I can't take the report because he was monitoring the the count. And I was like, okay, at least get his details. So I was telling the guard in front of the man, get this man's details. Like, I'm not going to confront him myself. I had to push really hard to get the guard to get your man's name and his phone number. I think later on it transpired that he didn't even take the full number it was missing a digit and I was just like and at that point I was very upset so I didn't have time to count the digits that was a guard he could have asked him to present ID he could have done something he could have you know radioed someone in he took the the details and that was then passed on to Anglesey which is right there next to to the council It, it was just left at that 
So you're standing with the guard and this man is shouting at you. How did the guard react to that? Did he ask the man to calm down? I think he told him to calm down, but Duran kept shouting back. It was just very disconcerting. I don't think other people, people with more melanin probably would get away with that. And he just kept shouting. I was just shocked at that point. And then me being me, I walked to Anglesey, which is like 50 metres from there, the closest guard station. And a couple of people said, look, we're going to go be witnesses because, you know, we were in a space of solidarity and, and you know, mm-hmm. um, those of us who were demanding rights to bodily autonomy and anti-deprecation and things like that. So they followed me to the guard station. And so I go into the Anglesey guard station, which is a space that I had only known from registering my own immigration permission there. And I go to the public counter and I said, look, I want to report this. And then the guard just started taking my report there at the public booth. I was a bit in shock. And, and then afterwards, I was like, if I was a victim of other offences, would I would my statement have been taken there at the public counter and not in a private space? Um, you know, look, there, there are worse cases of, of, of racist abuse. But still, I was a bit in shock. Everyone else was listening to what I was saying. And it was just very public. And it just felt, this isn't great. And and I think whenever I think about these things, I'm always just like, um, you know, what if it was an abuse of sexual nature? You know, like, that's not okay. A victim of any crime should be treated with dignity and respect. Um, And it is upsetting, you know, like it's been years, but it's still, it is upsetting. I gave my statement, left all my details. A couple of the people who followed me went there as witnesses. There was also a guard who was a witness. So I was expecting that at least someone would get a bit of a fright of, you know, you shouldn't do this to other people. It's very clear that even now, thinking back on it, that response from the guards was very upsetting to you. What did you do after that? I actually went back to where I came from. I went back to Paraguay to see my family as I I was on my holidays. I received an email from a Garda in the Garda station just telling me that the person had gotten a caution. And at that point, I I didn't know what a caution was. I just looked it up, you know, went to Citizens Information. And part of the thing is it said that they should seek my views. And I was just like, no one ever asked me. I would have loved to talk to this guy and just said, look, this is not okay. And these are the reasons that this is not okay. And this is how it makes a person feel. Maybe, you know, kind of like have a chat, not necessarily get him, you know, into jail, but my views weren't sought. And it was just this, you know, yep, there's a caution. And that was it. After I talked to other people, they were, oh my God, you got a caution. Other people didn't even get that. So it kind of puts it into perspective, um, you know, how, you know, it was verbal abuse. That's not okay. But other people who get perhaps more physical types of abuse, what do they get? The adult caution scheme, which is operated by the guards, is an alternative to prosecution that can be utilised for certain offences such as public order offences, minor theft, minor assault and minor damage to property. It came into being in 2006 and can be used where the evidence is clear that the person committed the offence and it's not in the public interest to prosecute them. 
These can be really positive things because it's often not serving any huge purpose to drag somebody into the criminal justice system. And that's particularly true where the offence is minor or the person has never committed a crime before. It's the local Garda superintendent who makes the decision, not the arresting or investigating officer, on whether or not to administer a caution. And they must take into account the views of the victim and the public interest when they're making their decision. So the victim doesn't get to determine whether or not it happens, but their views should be considered. It can only be done if the accused accepts responsibility for what they have done. And the caution is administered in a guard station and the person signs that they accept the caution. A second caution can't be administered without the consent of the DBP, so it's meant as a one-off thing. But there's actually very little information available about how the scheme is operating. And in fact, the policing authority ordered an independent review into the scheme last year. Mao, as you can tell, is a pretty fierce woman, clearly very firm in her determination to report racial abuse. But that's not always the case. The Irish Network Against Racism runs the iReport system which is a way that people who experience racism in Ireland can report those experiences so that we know about them without making an official report. And what their data shows is that there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to make official reports. In their 2019 report, I report found that just 13% of cases were reported to Angarda Siakana. 27 cases included both criminal offences and illegal discrimination, but only five of those were reported to the guards. The most common reason for not reporting to the guardie was, I did not think the guardie would do anything. That was 27%. And 13% said they did not know how to report it. As Maho points out, and we'll talk more about it in a bit, people are also often concerned about the impact reporting will have on the immigration process. Those reporting to iReport also named the things that might make them more likely to report to the guards. And these included the availability of anonymous reporting, a self-report form, and contact with the police officer from the same ethnic or religious group. As it stands, iReport conclude that levels of trust in Gardaí to address racism are low, and the high numbers of reports which indicate that the incidents are part of an ongoing pattern of racism particularly those which have escalated to violence over a period of time, demonstrate that Garda efforts to tackle racism before it escalates need to improve. It's important that we recognise that, that reporting crimes comes with additional barriers for some people, which makes Maho's resolve all the more impressive. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Lucy Michael, an expert on racism and integration and also a commissioner on the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Thanks very much for joining us, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Um, we've been talking in this episode to Maho Rivas, um, who has been telling us about her experiences of the guards, both as a migrant, but also in relation to her experience of reporting hate crime. Um, Maho is a very feisty woman, but she also has fantastic supports. She's married to an Irishman and she was comfortable and determined to report her incident to the guards, which she did. 
But that's not always the case, is it, for people? There are real barriers to reporting to the guards, aren't there? There are immense barriers in reporting to anyone, even before you get to the point of reporting to the Gardaí. Firstly, there's a, there is a psychological barrier to reporting, which is to admit what's happened, that it's happened to you on the basis of who you are, something that you cannot change. And that's the first psychological barrier. The second is then the response of the first person you tell about it will influence how you think about it. So that might be a family member, somebody who's been through it. It might be a friend who's never experienced it. Um, so the responses of the first person is really important. Then thinking about who else you might report to, you might report to an NGO or a victim support group. Again, their response is important. And then finally, thinking about reporting to Gardaí, there are a number of things that will come into play. Uh, one is what's your previous experience with Gardaí? Not necessarily police in other countries. We've looked at that in I report, and that doesn't appear to have any significant influence at all on people's likelihood of reporting to Gardaí, but rather their direct experience with the Gardaí regardless of whether it's connected to hate crime or something else, will determine whether they feel that they can trust the Gardaí uh, and how well they feel they can navigate the situation, the processes that have been put in place by Angarda Shikona uh, to record hate crime. And there has been a lot of media coverage about the fact that Ireland doesn't have hate crime laws. Uh, of course, we have laws against violence. We have laws against harassment uh, and so on. And anybody can report on that basis. But the coverage of Angarda Siakona's consistent and repeated failures to document hate crimes appropriately really is off-putting to many people. Now, there's always a balance in talking about policing between pointing out the problems of trust with the police and actually then thinking about the extent to which you might put off other victims from reporting. Um, but I think in Ireland, what we've had is relatively high levels of um trust in Angarda Siakona in previous decades and now what we're seeing and we've been recording I report data for seven years now we're seeing now the impact of second and third reports to Angarda Siakona simply aren't happening because the, the first experience was so disappointing and frustrating. And what makes that experience disappointing and frustrating? Not being believed on first visit to a guard station or on first call at somebody not attending the scene uh, somebody attending the scene uh, but not collecting evidence, somebody not following up or being available for follow-up on the case, or being told that, as so many people are, straight away, well, we'll record it, but there's nothing we can do about it. That kind of response from Garda Shikona is the most common response that we have recorded in iReport um, and that we hear anecdotally uh, from victims um, and ethnic minority and migrant communities more generally. Hate crime is is uh, something that's really can be recorded now by Angarda Shikona. It is possible to record it in the pulse system, uh, but many guards are still sceptical about the extent to which their job is to police the hatred and hostility that's behind crimes. And that's really where Angarda Shikona needs more training, specialist training, uh, and it needs to be embedded in career development all the way through there is lots of expertise out there, lots of uh, good models that can be copied across Europe. Um, but Angarda Shikona has been very slow to pick that up. Part of that may be about lack of resources linked to the absence of legislation. Um, part of it may be cultural within Angarda Shikona. Um, certainly on the basis of the evidence, we would suspect that it's a bit of both. Well, 
What's important to recognise here is the work that the guards could be doing to ensure greater reporting, rather than thinking about this in terms of the burden that should be placed on victims to report. I'm not a bit of a troublemaker in okay. a way that I've reported street harassment in Paraguay where it's, you know, like, it's just so normal that I'm like, but I'm not going to let it go. And, and I guess because I come from, you know, my legal background, I'm like, even if it doesn't get resolved, the number has to count. But I am also aware, you know, like I would never, ever say to someone, you need to go and report it for the better good, because I know how unsatisfactory the systems can be. And because I'm involved in cycling activism, I usually joke, you know, if I were to report every person who close passes me and who is aggressive towards me in the road, I wouldn't have time for work. You know, Um, it would be a full time job. So there are things that are so systemic that it can just get exhausting. And a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, you you should really go and report it. And it's like, you know what, the last 10 times I tried, didn't work the 11th you won't even bother but you know so that's what you know like I would never judge anyone for not following through as I would I'm just perhaps too determined and have a bit of time in my hands sometimes don't even get me started on on you know undocumented people and people who have more precarious immigration status because I think that's really um you know how many people are afraid of approaching the guardy because they're afraid that their immigration status might be investigated that's not okay and even if we don't do it because it's the right thing to do that those people's lives and and safety are taking are taken seriously it affects the rest of us when a society is less safe because they are afraid of reporting that they're being abused in the workplace or that they're being abused racially or that there is you know sexual abuse or, or any type of crime so i think it just really brings down the trust that we can have in the system and we should all feel a bit less safe if not everyone feels safe enough to to go and report these issues. When we're looking at policing of migrant communities, I think they inherently feel, it creates a perception that they are inherently policed. So they are a community that are policed from the minute they come in. That's Fiona Finn, the CEO of NASC, a charitable organisation based in Cork that works with immigrants and asylum seekers. She's over 20 years experience of working in this field. They're an administrative function. I mean, the Department of Justice has already gone over the immigration permission. They've already decided this is just a function of registration. It is literally to register your presence in the state and to be issued with what's like a GNIB card or a residency card. So they should not form part of the policing function. The start of it is that immigration in this country is implemented by the Gardaí, except in Dublin, where you have the immigration delivery service. In every other place in the country, you do your immigration registration at a Garda station at the GNIB, so the Garda National Immigration Bureau. So your first contact point in this country with a Garda is going to be because of your immigration status. You would talk to a lot of Irish people and they would have never had to step foot in a Garda station unless it was to get like a passport form signed. Whereas for an immigrant, it is a regular experience and it's not the most dignified one. This is a really important point for a lot of people who grow up in Ireland. They may have only been in a Garda station to get their passport signed or to register to vote. Generally quite positive experiences. But that's not what it's like for migrants. What, what is it like when you attend the Garda station? The indignity of having to queue for immigration 
it is just you have no access to toilets you have no access to seats it, it just really depends on each guard station i've had to go sick sitting on a cold floor um waiting for hours you know with day one of my period we would have gone at 6am in the morning which is not a, a normally early time here um queue there for maybe three or four hours um there there isn't necessarily too much clarity on what documents you need there isn't necessarily interpreters so i myself have you know i speak other languages other than english so i myself have had to intervene to explain things to people language obviously is always an issue i mean for migrant communities engaging in any services across the state and the availability of interpretation is very poor right across all services from you know health education right across right across the board that's that is problematic so it can just be a very adversarial almost system um and at least in cork city the last time i was there you had like two short benches maybe to sit eight people but you would have maybe 30 or 40 and and it's like a it's a round room so you would have queues spiraling into each other because there's so many people who want to register their immigration status so you do that once to register and you may or may not be successful if you have all of the documents that they want or need and then sometimes you need your spouse with you and sometimes you need your child if your permission depends on being the parent of an Irish child you have to have your child with you you know what if your child is a 3 month old you know that length of time without a seat without access to a toilet without being able to leave the queue to go get a cup of coffee it, it's it's not the best experience and when you have to go you have to go because if you don't have that immigration card your social welfare could be stopped mm-hmm. um you could your boss could tell you you cannot work because you're not legally allowed to work anymore um you could have a break in your immigration status and that could mean that you have to wait another year for citizenship because there's a break in your permission so it, it is very high stakes to be honest i'm i'm very worried about the conditions of those registration offices now with covid because the people who queue there are all non-eu immigrants that's everyone from the person who serves you dinner in a restaurant to your doctor or your nurse or the teacher whoever is a non-eu immigrant has to go through that queue so it really is to me a concern of public health that registration is being done in those conditions and as i said the stakes are too high like if a family doesn't get their immigration card or social welfare could be stopped and children could be starving like it's it's very real consequences and that's just the immigration part of it One of the questions in the citizenship form is have you ever come to the attention of the guardie and there are no specific guidelines or there isn't a lot of clarity on how good character is judged by citizenship mm. unit um so coming to the attention of the guardie could mean many things i think it just speaks to uh, how these two systems can interact if some people are police more than others if some people um you know are you know just left alone and be like look sure don't don't do it anymore when others are suffering bigger consequences for the same type of actions you know it is very harmful in more than one level the way that people are policed and and there was this one time that i i remember it very vividly that i had an incident with a taxi driver who happened to be brown like me and i seriously thought you know i had a picture of the plate and and i just thought there look I could go and report this to the guards because of these abuse you know he told me to stick to the curb um things that were shouted at me 
by many other taxi drivers who were white. But I'm afraid that this guy's actually going to get done. <laughs> the way the system works, even from people like myself, you know, look, I might just go and have a chat with them. I wouldn't report them to the guards because I just, um, well, I'm the, I'm very, very dissatisfied, dissatisfied with the way that the guardie do not respond with our concerns for safety when people are parking on cycling lanes or parking on, um, on footpaths or who are overtaking or passing us really closely. Like there just doesn't seem to be any concern for our physical well-being. Um, I do have concerns that it might be selective and. You know, this man could have, you know, suffered, um, you know, for an action that wasn't okay. But if he was someone else, I'm not sure it would have been taking taken that seriously. I think that just speaks to the lack of, you know, the the, the erosion of the trust that that we have in in placing. And I think this really links to the broader issue of racism in Angardishiakana. We saw a report published recently in which none of the guards interviewed expressed any positive views of travellers. Would this be an issue that you have concerns about? I would, I would. And, and I think, like, I've always presented them as concerns because, unfortunately, we don't have data available. I Part of my lunchtime is I just walk out and, and walk around Cork City and I would have seen quite a few instances of the guardy stopping and talking and questioning someone and it just didn't seem right to me, you know, maybe to Roma women with their children. And I'm like, mm, what's the story here? You know, it just doesn't seem right. I just have so many questions. And even more recently um, in April, I remember I was on North Main Street in Cork City and a, a couple of uh, a couple of guys um, who were brown. I think I remember I, I in my tweet, I, re- I, I described them as who take the sun well like me. I remember I, I just stopped and there were these two guards who were questioning these two men. And what I would normally do is I would just stand near there from a safe distance and observe. Um, and and maybe I can elaborate on, on my fear of intervening. But um, so I just stood there kind of in a corner, maybe 50 meters. There's also COVID, so you don't want to get too close. And I was just observing. Um, so should it be needed, I can be a pair of eyes if that was looking. And I saw the guards stopping the men and, and they were checking all of their pockets. And this was very public, very public. Um, and they were checking their pockets and they were checking everything in them. And I could see talking and questioning. And it, they took the, I could even see that they took up the pouch of their tobacco and inspected that every pocket of their coats and I was just like what is happening and then the guards leave them alone and one of them walked towards me and I just said are you okay is everything okay out of concern for him and he was like yeah I don't know why they stopped me and then I looked around me and this was April we were all meant to be you know keeping our distance and all of that and you could see a lot of people around the place in north main who were not necessarily two meters away from each other but these two lads were the ones who were stopped and i think because we don't have the data it's really hard to back up these hunches that we have um in terms of how the the guards treat one you know some people versus others um, and I think there are many stories when you when you look at social media and when other people describe their interactions with the guards and, and it doesn't have to be race. Um, there's people from, you know, different socioeconomic backgrounds who live in certain areas of the city or who have certain accents. And you're like, we cannot 
detect the problem if we're not collecting the data and that's something that I that I feel really strongly about because we're just in the blind This lack of data is a real concern. The policing authority have recently commented on the lack of data gathered by Angarda in relation to the ethnicity of those that they engage with. And so it's understandable that people are left to draw conclusions from what they simply see on the street. And Maho tells us she feels like people are being profiled. I asked Fiona Nask if this is something they are concerned with. It is. And I think, you know, we did some work on this in the past. And it was in particular with the Roma community, because they were a community that very much felt that they were kind of being policed and controlled. Um, I think racial profiling was, was something that they had experienced. But what the Roma community were coming to us saying that it was around um, motor offences. So they found that they would be stopped routinely. So, you know, driving down the road. So obviously the reason for the stop was to check whatever tax insurance or whatever. But they found that this, for them, this was happening multiple times, even though that they were compliant with everything. So that is an issue. Yeah. And it, I think particularly with travel and Roma communities, that's quite a significant issue. So over the years, a number of different communities have reported to NASC that they feel that they are being racially profiled. I also put this to Lucy Michael. Does she feel that racism is an issue in policing? I am concerned about that. And I would say that it's racism across all levels. It's structural, it's institutional and it's individual. And that is not to say, of course, that all guards are racist. It's to say that the system in which they work is structurally racist. That is, the Garda Chicana have responsibility for a whole range of things which make the uh, the job of policing in diverse neighbourhoods a little bit more difficult by virtue of the rules and structures that they've been using and the practices that they've been using. Um, so our, our communities are geared up through neighbourhood policing to look for outsiders. Um, but what we know is that biases that operate within us assume that people who do not look like us must be outsiders we also know that the very long history of the style of policing of travellers in this country has led uh, guards to blame travellers uh, for many hate crimes. Um, and that gets in the way of proper investigations uh, of hate crimes when they are reported. Um, because the immediate response is to say, well, it was probably travellers. Um, now, as we know, travellers experience a, a huge amount of racism themselves. And, uh, and very much understand what it's like to be uh, on that end of, of policing. And really what, what we're looking at when we think about that kind of institutional racism within Garda is the fact that since 2002, we've had an integration and diversity office that really has treated their role as going out and being friendly with minority communities rather than giving them an effective service. Um, when I spoke with Angarda Shikona two years ago about introducing third party reporting centres, uh, which is um, training and nominating key uh, community organisations or NGOs to take reports and to work with Angarda Shikona to relay them. The response was very simply, your responsibility is to send them straight to us. We'll take care of them. We have a diversity office. But the reality is the diversity office does not have any involvement in investigations of hate crimes unless invited. And the reality on the ground is 
it doesn't have any involvement because it's rarely invited uh, to deal with hate crimes. The systems that the guards have put in place then are not designed to serve the victim as best they could. And this rings true for Maho. I, I don't know. I guess I have mixed feelings because when I look at the immigration system, I think they've been burdened, you know, in inverted commas with the immigration part of it. Why doesn't the immigration delivery service take it off the hands of the guards who have enough things to to be spending the resources then and it would be more appropriate that it's dealt by in an administrative way in an appropriate building where you have a seat like you go and get your driving license you know why can't we have that um so i don't think it's fair um the way that the guardie as a body is being placed in that situation and i've written to all of my dds Michal martin you had an email from me about that it is about resources and i've seen I talked to a detective sergeant trying to do his best to do what he can with two or three members of staff when it comes to the indignity of the immigration queues. I, I know that there there isn't enough resources, but, you know, lads, <laughs> I would like to feel that we matter too, you know, we being people of colour, immigrants. And, and so I, I guess I just, I would really like to see a change in the culture. I don't have the worst relationship with the guardies, you know, can I look, I reported an incident and myself, I haven't been through what many others have, which are much more harrowing um, circumstances. Um, but I would love to be a bit more love there <laughs> um, and, and trust, but it's just, um, it, that has to be earned and it just doesn't feel like that right now. I think the experiences of people are very different depending on on where you are on the spectrum. And many people are very happy with how the services or how the policing works. Um, And maybe it's because they're blind to the experiences of others. Um, So I I do think what you're doing is really important in terms of bringing it out, how not everyone has the same experience, you know. And look, I am really grateful that most guards don't carry guns. because. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I think um, like many things, it doesn't come out of malice or um, uh, planned, a, you know, a, you know, like someone sat down and actually said, oh, we're going to treat people like this. You know, I, I don't think it, it is an active plan that someone wrote down a document somewhere to to make it really <laughs> not the best service it can be. But um, I think the experiences will tell you that it's happening and it needs to be addressed. What if you were being beaten up at home and you were afraid of going to the guards because you're undocumented? How is that okay? You know, how many people are afraid of approaching the guardie because they're afraid that their immigration status might be investigated? And if we, and and I always make this argument to look, if you don't care about the humanity of people who are going through these crimes and who are being abused in this way, it's going to trickle out to the rest of society. And we've seen it now with how the instances of abuse or where, you know, less than ideal working spaces are affecting us all. So actually it's all of our businesses. There's also the issue of immigrants are people and people of colour are people. And for that, they deserve, we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. 
Mao makes the very stark point about the likelihood of the undocumented reporting domestic violence. That should make us all stop in our tracks. Women are highly unlikely to report domestic violence. Usually will have had to happen numerous times before it is reported. The levels of reporting are quite shocking. Universally, domestic violence is one of the most underreported crimes. And just about 10% of victims report to the guards, from what we know. This has, thankfully, risen quite drastically by almost 25% during COVID, following a really concerted effort and campaign by the guards. Of course, we don't know how many migrant women or people of colour report because the stats don't break down that way. The reasons for not reporting include a fear that it won't be taken seriously, it won't end things, it may in fact make things worse. Concerns their kids could be taken off them, they may be financially dependent on their abuser and that they are in a relationship with this person so they may not want to get them in trouble. So if the police are called, how they respond is key. It's an area where police don't traditionally have a good reputation. UK and American research shows that domestic violence was often considered rubbish work. The Women's Aid 2018 impact statement states that 61% of women found the Garda response helpful, while 39% thought they were unhelpful. And that's what most women feel. Layer on top of that, being concerned about your very right to be in the country. Add that on top. Add your inability to access key supports and services, to communicate effectively due to language barriers. Add the fact that you're not entitled to work. I honestly get chills when I think of how impossible life would seem. And let's think through the consequences of not reporting. The woman continues to suffer and be assaulted. We know such violence often only escalates. She doesn't receive the attention and support she needs. If there are children, they continue to be witness to this, to be at risk and suffer all the accompanying trauma. That trauma is intergenerational. It will affect how they engage with their romantic partners and their own children in the future if we don't deal with it. And by not reporting, the state does not have an accurate sense of the scale of the problem and thus what resources or laws or services to direct towards it. So, it, it, you know, it, it's all kind of tied together how they, the systems work with each other. So I think that the citizenship process needs to be clarified. There needs to be better guidance. It needs to be more nuanced. Um, we need to separate immigration enforcement from policing. That is urgent for all of our sakes. We also need to have records of um, who are the guards stopping, even if it doesn't end up in an arrest or in a conviction, because the contact, the high contact that people have with the guards being stopped again and again, um, that, that, you know, it doesn't happen, I don't think, to the same level for some parts of the population compared to others. And it's not just about race, as I said, it can also be about income and, and geography. And we don't have the data to identify and tackle that. Often we can see things as we want them to be, but by listening to others, we can start to see them as they really are. For me, this episode has given insights into a system I would not otherwise see, 
and shown why it's not always as simple as just call the guards. Trust in policing is a complicated dynamic. I want to thank Fiona Finn and Dr. Lucy Michael for the insights and expertise and a special thank you to Maho Rivas for sharing her lived experience of being policed in Ireland. Thanks to my producers, Tony Groves and Brian at Grooves Ahead. Over the coming weeks, this series will capture the experiences that a diverse range of people have with the police, putting those voices front and centre. Join me next week when we'll speak to a sex worker about her engagements with Angarda Siakona. Until then, thank you for listening. Policed in Ireland is part of the Tortoise Shack and is a listener-funded platform. To support this project, please join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack.